Thank you everyone for being here. Again, my name is Anita Sharma. I'm with the BBA's Delivery of Legal Services section along with my colleague, Nicole Mereda. Thank you all for being here. It's an honor to welcome you into the space and to join this really important conversation around chronic stress and trauma, especially for those of us practicing in legal services. Thank you so much to Kathleen Flinton and Anna Mancuso for your work in this field and for taking the time to share your knowledge with us today. Nicole and I would like to welcome all of you, thank everyone at the BBA who made this session possible, and give a really big shout out to Noah Williams, uh, who helped us put So it appears that we might be having some issues with the Zoom on Anita's side. So I just want to say, everyone, thank you for coming. Um, Kathleen and Anna, um, I'd love to more fully introduce you. Um, I do not have your bios in front of me at the moment. So if you could just say a couple of brief things about yourself, and then we can jump right in. Great. Um, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Kathleen Flinton. Um, I'm Assistant Professor of Clinical Practice at Boston College School of Social Work. Um, I'm also a practitioner in the field of immigrant and refugee mental health for a long time around Boston um, and have worked with Anita at PAIR and loads of folks um, taking case, pro bono cases through PAIR on um, supporting asylum seekers in their um, asylum application process. I also maintain a private practice. I'm working with survivors of torture and trafficking, which is my area of subspecialization and have had the privilege of um, meeting my colleague, Anna, who will introduce herself in a few minutes, um, many several years ago, and being able to identify a shared passion that we both have around supporting providers who are working with survivors of trauma on managing their own chronic stress and vicarious trauma. So we came to this moment today through having worked with Anita's team at PAIR, um, during the pandemic, when everything was shut down, uh, we had the, the privilege of working with that team over a period of about eight months and really thinking about learning about vicarious trauma and managing those skills. So that's um, Anita's initiative. I'm so sorry. I, I, Hi, Anita. I'm not sure what happened. Hi. Hi. Um, so sorry, should I continue with the bio? Sure. I just did a brief okay. introduction of myself. Oh, perfect. If you want to okay. um, introduce Anna and then... Excellent. You, yeah. Yeah, sorry about that. I'm not sure what happened. Um, so thank you, Kathleen, for, for jumping in. Uh, and I'd like to introduce Anna Mancuso, a licensed clinical social worker specializing in trauma recovery. Uh, Anna has an expertise in working with asylum seekers, refugees, and survivors of torture. She's an adjunct professor at the a lecturer at the Boston University School of Social Work and teaches graduate level courses focusing on clinical trauma work. Anna was formerly at Boston Medical Center, Center for Refugee Health and Human Rights, where she provided long-term therapy to survivors of torture and related trauma and wrote many, many psychological evaluations in support of asylum claims. She has experience in working with survivors of interpersonal violence at the Center for Violence Prevention and Recovery at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Anna received her BA from the University of Pennsylvania Master of Social Work from Simmons School of Social Work and has a Master's of Science in Population and International Health from the Harvard School of Public Health. 
So in terms of the two-part BBA training today, um, today we're having sort of the kickoff session that covers the basic understanding of trauma and in particular chronic stress and its impact on the body's central nervous system and brain. Part two, which will be held next Tuesday morning, will build off of the information that Kathleen and Anna shared today and will help attendees create a toolkit to build resilience, adopt long-term skills for central nervous system regulation and stress management so we can all thrive in our work. I've been in legal services and at PAIR for over 20 years. My work has centered on working with asylum seekers and survivors of trauma. And I always thought I knew a lot about trauma, you know, having taken these trauma training um, sessions, having worked with medical professionals who have documented my client's trauma, and even like making arguments um, about how in, uh, trauma impacts my clients and their ability to apply for asylum. But it was really last year when I took my um, took a sabbatical from parent sort of took three months off that I really understood the profound impact that chronic uh, that chronic stress and my own past trauma had on my being and how that showed up in the workplace both physically and mentally so about a year ago when I went on sabbatical which should have been a time of rest relaxation and rejuvenation actually felt like the exact opposite it was messy, awful, painful, confusing, and hard. And I know that doesn't make sense when you think about, but she had a three-month vacation. Um, the first few weeks of the sabbatical were actually physically painful for me, like my being hurt, and, and it felt like I was just having a complete crash. And I really knew I needed help. And I was lucky that I could reach out to the foundation that was supporting my sabbatical and they were able to connect me with an executive coach, someone who had a background in neuroscience and trauma. And that's really when my work to kind of unpack the effects of chronic stress and also to recognize like the own personal trauma that I carry, how that impacted me, my, my brain, my central nervous system, like how, how I show up at work. And really like my work is, uh, around this is, is just like at the very surface. Um, that's why I'm so excited for today's session and to really kind of open up the learning and conversations that we all should be having about chronic stress. And, and, and for those of us in legal services who work with trauma survivors, even to recognize that our own trauma, we bring that to our work and, and, and we carry it um, with us every day. So we all experience so much stress at work, um, you know, helping, trying to help our clients. And sometimes it's really hard to even just recognize what that chronic stress is doing. Kathleen and Anna are going to share a lot more. But when we're talking about chronic stress, we're not talking about the stress, you know, sort of the positive stress, like the, the rush of endorphins right before you're about to argue a case, you know, that kind of get you get you through um, it's It's more like the high intensity stress day after day overstimulation, understimulation, you know, you're trying to be perfect, you're trying to fix something, and instead you're kind of like spinning and spinning, and, and it really does feel like a, a survival mode and puts you further away from your goal. Um, and, um, you know, Kathleen and Anna are gonna kind of talk about what, what the impact of this type of stress is and the real cognitive and physical functional impairments that can come from it. So we're really lucky today uh, to have Kathleen and, and Anna help us learn more about sort of the impact of chronic stress and our own personal trauma and how that does affect our mind and body. You know, attorneys are supposed to be the problem solvers. We're supposed to be resilient. We're supposed to be infinitely strong. 
And it's a real challenge to have these conversations. It takes awareness. It takes energy. It takes like space and, and, and strength to like make changes on, on how we work. But I, I really do believe that if we just can start having the conversations and getting to know the terms that we really can on an individual group and organizational and community level achieve effectiveness and find a more authentic and sustainable way to survive in this field, to work in this field without guilt or apology. So again, super excited to, to hand the session over to Kathleen and Anna, and thank you all for being a part of the, the learning journey today. It's all yours. Thanks, Anita. Thank you so much, Anita. Um, so as Anna and I were preparing to join you all today, um, we were so excited to share so many different things with you and then realize that we don't have that much time. Um, so today's a kind of a, an overview of a couple different foundational ways of thinking about how chronic and toxic stress impact our central nervous system. Um, we're introducing some more emerging and complicated concepts around neurobiology and neuroscience. Um, and so we, we have allowed plenty of time at the end for questions. Um, if there are any points of clarification where something doesn't sound clear as we are presenting, feel free to go ahead and put that question in the Q&A. And we'll try to address those as we go. But larger general questions, um, we are asking, we are hoping to address at the end of the presentation. So for our time today, um, we have four goals that we are trying to meet. First is to understand stress as a neurobiological response in the body, to understand the different states that our nervous system moves in and out of in interacting and managing stress, how toxic stress responses show up for us in our professional role, and also how our core beliefs about ourselves are impacted by toxic stress. So we're gonna start off um, with a brief neurobiology of the stress response. So what is stress? We all use the word a lot that we're feeling stressed. Um, we know what stress is, you know what it feels like in your body, but we all experience stress for evolutionarily fundamental reasons of survival that within our brain and the, in our entire body, there are responses to stimulus within our environment, things that happen in our environment that we are forced to respond to in order for us literally to have survived over, over thousands and thousands of years. So these responses are hardwired. Um, They're hardwired in the brain, but they are also system-wide, meaning that our entire body is implicated in activating in response to whatever in our environment needs responding to, and that there's very intense hormonal activation that happens, that our brain in receiving the need of a signal to respond to will secrete hormones throughout our body. And so our entire body is affected um, by experiences of stress. I think we often talk about our thoughts um, and perhaps feelings associated with stress, but we also disconnect sometimes from really thinking about that lar the larger, longer-term toll from a physical perspective that those system-wide responses have. So as I mentioned, there's in essence, stress is when something in the environment demands a response from us. And there's physical stress, like sometimes there's a um, perhaps a, a lion charging at us and we need to physically kind of respond to that and get out of the way or to fight for our survival. And then there's psychological stress where there's something that um, demands a, a psychological response from us, even though there may not be a physical action that is paired with it. 
but our body is still experiencing that stress response, even though we might not have a body-based response demanded in that moment. So as Anita mentioned briefly, there's positive stress, like stress is our friend, right? It is um, something that helps us to be able to complete tasks, to do what we need to do. And so when we think about stress and positive stress, we have an activation of these response systems that happen. That activation is transient. It usually mobilizes us to tend to something. And then our bodies are able to re-regulate into a non-stress orientation afterwards. Then we move, if you could kind of think of this as almost as a continuum, then we sort of move down that continuum into what is tolerable stress, moving sort of towards traumatic stress. So sometimes we have increased activation of our stress response systems that tip over into needing to be responses of our survival response systems. So the thing that's perceived in our environment not only needs attention, but it, it needs that survival response with it as well. And that gets triggered over and over and over again. But generally speaking, we're, we're able to tolerate that level of activation, even if it's in response to trauma and is a traumatic stress. And when we see that stress at a tolerable level, it's usually because it is buffered by the relationships that we have or the environment that we're in. So you have supportive colleagues, you have loved ones that you can talk to, that you can talk about how you're feeling. And those relationships help to buffer and support you through the impact of that, that tolerable stress or traumatic stress. Or perhaps you have an environment that is able to respond and is able to move, remove the threat that is causing you stress. And so while activated, over and over again, there are some things there to help you to tolerate it. Where that traumatic stress and tolerable stress really tips over into traumatic stress that is really toxic stress, where it has this um, impact on our minds and bodies over time, is when we're getting that prolonged activation of that stress response system, again, either because of whatever in our environment or within our jobs or because of a survival response, but we just don't have enough to be able to buffer the impact or to mitigate the impact on us. And so it starts to have this cumulative effect on our systems over time that leads to it becoming toxic. So trauma and or stress, you can use whichever one makes sense for you based on your experience or your history, but we're talking about chronic activation of these system responses without resolution or mitigation. And whether it's chronic trauma, or excuse me, chronic stress or trauma, we do see similar outcomes. So based on that chronicity and trauma experiences, we end up with the same impact on the body. And when I say trauma experiences, that could be based in abuse, neglect, or other commonly defined trauma experiences that you might think of like car accidents or, or being a victim of a crime. But ultimately, whichever pathway gets you there, um, we end up having a similar outcome. And what ends up happening is it can lead to us and our bodies, both our psychological and physical responses, have difficulty differentiating risk, um, meaning that everything starts to feel like it's high risk. Everything starts to feel like the stakes are really high. And I think that this point is particularly relevant for as we think about ourselves, Anna and I think about ourselves as practitioners, and you think about yourselves in legal practice, is when we have this cumulative chronicity over time that it everything starts to feel like the stakes are really high. And it makes it difficult to differentiate between times when you actually are in a high stakes situation versus times when it's not actually high stakes, but the stakes are feeling very high based on your body response. 
All right, I'll turn it over to Anna to take us more into neurobiology. Hi, everyone. So we're going to talk more about what we mean when we talk about that um, trauma response system. So we're going to talk um, first about our central nervous system, which is kind of a control panel in our body, and it largely includes our brain and our spinal cord, and it governs the trauma response system. You may have also heard the trauma response system referred to as the fight or flight response. So it includes a, um, a couple of key parts of our brain. Um, Kind of going from the, the top down, we have our prefrontal cortex, which is in charge of abstract thoughts, cognition, social engagement, our limbic system, which is, in, um, which is largely involved with um, the trauma response system, the fight or flight mechanism. Um, it's in charge of affect regulation. That's a clinical term for how we manage our feelings. I'm um, in our brainstem, which takes in sensory information from, um, from the rest of our body and translates it into the brain. Um, it's in charge of our heart rate, our blood pressure, and certain arousal states. Our limbic system, as I mentioned, is in charge of the trauma response system. The, um, we call it often the fight or flight um, response, but actually includes a couple of other responses. It includes the freeze response. Um, it also includes um, submit, fawn, attach, um, which I'll say we'll, we'll say more about in a, in a bit. There's a couple of key parts of this. What happens when somebody is experiencing stress or trauma, like for example, in that example that Kathleen used of the lion, um, is that our brainstem, which is sort of the bottom part of our brain, if you think about the brain as this, it's sort of the bottom part of the brain, takes in sensory information from outside um, and is regulating stress hormones. Let's say it sees a lion, it takes in that information and, and sends that information to the brain. The amygdala is the part of the brain that's really um, activated um, in times of stress and trauma. We call it the smoke detector, or the, the, the warning system of the brain, and it starts to fire um, when a threat is detected. Um, a hormone is released that allows that fight or flight function to kick in. You know, you might have heard stories about people running faster or able to, you know, um, do some other kind of physical feat um, in response to trauma. Um, that's actually neurobiologically correct. Um, and those things can happen. Um, it continues to function in times of, of stress and trauma and really takes over. That's that's great if there's if there's a lion, right? Um, but what can happen then is there's another part of that limbic system, the hippocampus, which is in charge of placing time and space. Um, it gives um, temporal context to memories, and it's often suppressed in times of trauma. Um, and so, therefore, sometimes um, our brains lack um, that information related to context that's that's relevant over um, longer periods of time. Our frontal cortex is that that top part of our brain. It's kind of a um, it is the in charge of executive function. It's in charge of cognitive function, regu um, regulatory abilities, and our social engagement system. The important thing to know is that when in times of high stress or trauma, the and when the amygdala is activated in our brains, the the prefrontal cortex is often suppressed because resources are devoted to survival. So therefore, um, we're not spending time um, being socially engaged or, you know, um, longer term planning because we're focused on surviving the moment, getting through the moment um, and responding to that stress. The autonomic nervous system um, is a part of our body, um, also called a control system, that um, involves involuntary actions within our body. It, it operates largely unconsciously. 
um, and involves kind of two sides. I'm going to show a diagram in a moment and involves two sides of our bodies. Um, thinking about it that way, um, there's a sympathetic response where, again, thinking about times of stress where our systems are activated. It's a sense of arousal, you know, think about what it feels like when you begin to feel stressed, right? Your heart rate begins to go up, your blood, your blood pressure might rise, you know, you might be sweating, you might, um, you're, you're more activated. That is the sympathetic nervous system um, responding to stress and helping us to, to meet the needs that the, the, that the moment of stress or trauma is requiring of us. Uh, the, the flip side is our parasympathetic nervous system, which is in charge of um, rest and digest. It is in charge of deactivating us. You know, it's in charge of helping us to slow down and sit on the couch after a stressful day. It's, it's pro-social um, and it inhibits um, trauma responses. It's in charge of helping us to be more socially engaged. So think about like that heart rate. If you're having a conversation with a friend, it's a lot easier to focus on that conversation with a friend. If your heart rate it isn't, you know, um, really activated and in, in, in going, um, excuse me, going uh, higher than it should be. Mm -hmm. uh, so these are, this is a, a diagram that you can look at later, but this is just to show the different ways in which the autonomic nervous system responds in times of stress, thinking about different um, functions within it, thinking about, um, again, heart rate um, and different, um, you know, even up to our, our pupils and our, um, our mouths. The window of tolerance, so if we can add on to this, the window of tolerance is a way to conceptualize how we manage feelings. All of us have a, a so-called window of tolerance or an optimal arousal zone. This is when our sympathetic nervous system and our parasympathetic nervous systems are balanced. Um, and we are able to be, our prefrontal cortex is online. So that means our trauma response response system isn't being activated. So our, um, we are able to be socially engaged. And this is a state where emotions can be tolerated and information can be integrated. It doesn't mean that this is like a happy stage. This just means um, that our bodies are feeling a sense of balance. We are not overly activated um, and we are able to be socially engaged. If, if we go to the top part of the diagram, looking at our hyperarousal zone, this is where that fight or flight response is being activated. Our sympathetic nervous system is taking over. And so we have higher levels of arousal. This often looks like um, emotional reactivity, hypervigilance, um, irritability, kind of, a, again, thinking about a revving up. What does it look like and feel like when we are revved up and responding to stress and to trauma? What does that look like within our bodies? Um, within that, keeping in mind that our social engagement system here isn't as activated because our resources are being devoted to meeting the needs of the fight or flight response. On the bottom side, we see our hypoarousal zone. Um, think about this as um, this is governed by the parasympathetic nervous system, but it's thinking about it as being underactivated, not um, being underactivated and that response system is sort of overly inhibited um, and not as able to respond um, to outside um, information. Again, the social engagement system and the prefrontal cortex system are not being um, engaged in the way that we would like them to be. This might look like numbing, this might look like avoidance, um, it might look like um, uh, a, a more dissociative response, et cetera. And so, oh, sorry. 
No, I can say here. So it's just thinking about where, um, what it looks like within when you're in your window. What does it look like when you're feeling socially engaged? And what does it look like when you begin to feel hyper arousal or fight or flight, like too much activation? I know for me that often I can begin to feel it. It begins to feel a little bit like irritability, um, which I've been doing this for a long enough time to know that that also um, entails a, a revving up of my heart rate, a little bit more of a, a blood pressure increase. Okay, on the bottom side, I know hyperarousal, frozen. So if we hear about the freeze response, it's too little activation, it's numbing, it's avoidance, it's um, it's not feeling um, as much. And then again, in our optimal, the optimal zone is where we want the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems to be balanced. So not neither one is overly dominant. We also think about what's happening when we're at the edges of that window of tolerance. Um, we, we call this clinically the threshold of response where we can kind of tolerate a little bit of stress or a little bit of underactivation, a little bit of overactivation and begin and noticing what that might feel like, which is called neuroception and Kathleen will say more about that. <laughs> All right, thank you, Anna. So layering another way of understanding our nervous system on top of this, we've got kind of the, the structures of what's functioning and then thinking about sort of the states that our nervous system goes into. So this is based on the work of Steve, Stephen Porges and polyvagal theory. Um, we will be sharing our slide deck with you when our sources are at the end. I will point out that there is a YouTube video in, as one, in one of the sources that is really great for sort of understanding, understanding this, this, this concept. But we start to think about our nervous system as having green light, yellow light, and red light states. So neuroception, which Anna just mentioned, is that ability to detect subtle changes. And within our neurobiology, you know, we're, we're pack animals, right? We are always reading each other's bodies as well as our environment for potential threat or assessing safety. So another layer of, of how our brainstem scans that environment is how we perceive the engagement behaviors of others. How are others interacting with us? And, um, and for those of you, I'm sure most people here work in some sort of team approach with, with other folks doing similar work. And this explains why you know, we can have an infection of a team where one person could be having a really, really stressed day and all of a sudden everybody around them starts to get stressed because of how, because of how their engagement behavior is being picked up by the nervous systems of everybody else. It's the process through which our neural circuits distinguish whether situations or people are safe, dangerous, or life-threatening. And the tasks of the nervous system here are one to, again, assess risk, and if the environment looks safe to inhibit those fight, flight, or freeze responses, to sort of say, we don't really need that level of response right now, let's put it aside, but let's keep it running in the background so that we have easy access to it in the event that we do detect threat. So it's really about this idea of detecting threats and determining safety. The vagus nerve, um, Anna showed you a diagram that had the sympathetic and the parasympathetic systems outlined on it, but right down the middle and here illustrated again is this really long nerve that stretches, connects up to our brain and then has neural endings connecting to the rest of our body. And so that's this really important communication pathway that's picking up these subtle, these subtle um, cues from the environment and from other people and determining whether we need that sympathetic or parasympathetic response. 
So it translates between the gut and the brain. So you've always sort of may have heard the saying, like, trust your gut. So you, you might not know cognitively why something feels the way it does, but you feel in your body about a per particular person, a particular situation. That's literally referring to this vagus nerve and that felt sense that you have of a particular situation. It's also really important in how we make memories. It helps to control our respiration, um, our heart rate, our breathing. And it's also really, really important in how we're able to relax. So that, that system that says to the those intense fight or flight responses, like it's okay, we don't need you right now. You can step aside so that we our bodies can relax. So this analogy of a traffic light, um, I, I apologize because the graphic is flipped. It would be much easier if, it, if the green was on, on top, but that's not, not, not how it's designed. So the green zone is the safety zone. So that's what Anna was referring to as like when you're, you're within your window of tolerance. Our social engagement system is engaged. Our heart rate is slow. Our digestion activates. So we, if we're relaxed enough to sit and share a meal with somebody, um, our facial muscles are responsive, we're smiling, um, we're, we're able to kind of have little crinkles around our eyes, our eyes are soft, we're able to make eye contact. And this is another interesting point, our hearing is turned on. So in part of this theory, um, the ability to really detect and respond to human voices is part of the ability to feel safe. Um, and I always um, you know, think about this a lot in thinking about kids who are in loud classrooms who may have a trauma history where the teacher might be speaking to them over and over again, think the kiddo is not listening. When in reality, if the kid's in a really aroused, hyper aroused state, they actually have a diminished capacity to be able to pick that human voice out of all the noise within the classroom. That yellow zone, which is that sympathetic arousal zone, so this would be the top of the window of tolerance, is the danger zone. So our heart rate starts to increase, our pain sensitivity increase, we're mobilized for movement. We start to get more flat facial affect, and this is really important in thinking about how we read each other's for safety cues. That middle ear is turned off and is hyper attuned to listening for lower threat tones that might, lower tones that might signal threat. And then the red zone within this model is the life threat zone. So our system has to go into freeze or immobilization. And that this really leads to kind of a metabolic shutdown in our body. And a healthy autonomic nervous system is fluid. Fluid, excuse me. It's able to bounce back and forth between the green and the yellow zone and tend to whatever tasks we need. So think about that positive stress. It's able to respond, but it's transient and is able to return back to the green zone. So positive versus toxic activation, because that all sounds kind of like the red light, red, yellow, green sounds a little, you know, very much like this, this or this. But in reality, as Anita mentioned, we all have positive stress, like our yellow zone is your friend when you're working in a high performance career, right? It's your get up and go. It's what motivates you. It's what brings you productivity. You have to get some level of sympathetic activation in order to move into productivity. Our red zone, moving into a more kind of red zone shutdown state is actually a good thing when it's done in the absence of threat. So we think about this as a mobilization with safety. The opportunity for our bodies to be able to relax and rest, it's important for replenishment and regeneration. Um, so I think about kind of yellow zone with in the presence or absence of threat and red zone in the presence or absence of threat. So in the absence of threat, being able to move into these states is a good thing. 
However, sometimes our wiring gets stuck. We get stuck in a particular state. And so that's where this chronicity comes in. So if you're constantly operating in the yellow zone, chronically there, we can end up getting stuck in that level of activation, which becomes toxic activation. Or you can get stuck in red, which is toxic activation within the red zone. Um, sorry, hold on a second. I'm having a little bit of challenge here, trying to move my slides. There we go. So in a healthy nervous system, you're in the green zone, you're able to move into, into sympathetic, you're able to settle, you might be able to move healthily into that red state in the absence of threat, that rest and relaxation return back to your normal range. But when our nervous system's triggered, here is the example that you get stuck on. So being stuck in yellow, anxiety, panic, hyperactivity, heightened startle response, inability to relax. Sorry, hold on one second, there we go. Um, finding that you have, sorry, my mouse is acting up on me, finding that you have digestive problems, right? So thinking about that, that brain gut connection, emotional flooding, perhaps experiencing chronic pain, sleeplessness, or hostility and rage. And then when we get stuck red, depression, flat, flat facial features, lethargy, deadness, exhaustion. I will also add exhaustion to um, their yellows, stuck on yellow as well, because it's really tiring to be there. This sense of disconnection um, tend to have um, low, maybe blood pressure problems. And again, we start to see digestive issues when we get stuck in this red zone. So when we get stuck, we're stuck in one response mode. And our nervous systems over time get wired by which zone we tend to spend a lot of time in. So this might be because you grew up in a setting where you had to have a lot of fight or flight response ready to respond to your environment, or you had to be more shut down in order to survive your environment. Or this can happen when you have a lot of chronic experiences of trauma later in adulthood or stress later in adulthood that doesn't have the ability to be mitigated by your relationships and environment. So our nervous system literally becomes wired to the zone that we're in. What gets used gets reinforced. So the neurons that wire together, fire together is what we say. And what doesn't get used starts to get underactivated and pruned off. And this leads us without the flexibility to be able to respond to different situations with different responses. So these are all adaptations, but we have the word, you know, kind of in parentheses, they're maladaptive at some point when they no longer fit the situation. So as adaptations, these serve a critical need for you to either be able to have job performance, to have been able to survive um, in difficult conditions when at some point in your life. But these states also inform how we see the world and how we manage ourselves in it. And so the question is, where they served a critical need in the past, are they still serving a role in keeping us safe? And if they're no longer serving the intended purpose, is there another strategy that is needed now? And so being able to identify whether you're stuck and thinking about how to get unstuck allows for you to think about other strategies that can be needed um, if the strategy you're using right now is no longer serving its purpose. All right, and Anna, back to you. I'm going to talk about what um, what this might look like and how this might impact um, our professional lives. Sorry, would you? 
Thanks. So if we're stuck on yellow, again, thinking about yellow as being um, the place where our sympathetic nervous systems are activated. So thinking about that as that, that revving up of our systems, what does that look like professionally? Um, and and some, of, um, some of you may identify with some of the things that are on this slide. It might look like um, a sense of needing control, um, irritability. And again, I used that example earlier, irritability. Think about what that might feel like in your body and how that matches with a sympathetic nervous system response or a, or a yellow zone response. It's a fight orientation um, where um, things seem very high stake and the, and the response might be to respond with a, with a, um, a fight response, hypervigilance, um, where um, there's a, a sense of being overly watchful for things, a sense of needing to look out for certain things, seeking out stressful situations, because that matches what our neurobiology is telling us to, 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 to seek and um, matches our level of activation. It may also um, present as working constantly. Again, I think any we could go back to, to being in school, like that sense of of something you need to get done. And so our sympathetic nervous system is activated and you write that paper really quickly. Um, and you're able to work a lot, um, when you are activated. Um, and that shows up a lot when we're stuck in the yellow zone, but I do want to note that, um, working is also a way, um, of, is, can also be a numbing strategy. It's a way of disconnecting from the outside world as well. So a, a mechanism of avoidance. Stuck on red, so where our parasympathetic nervous system um, is being activated, um, and we are um, in our fight or flight response is being inhibited. Um, this might look like depression. Um, it might look like low performance because um, the level of activation that's needed isn't there. It might look like a disconnection from the self um, because it's also thinking about um, being stuck on red as a um, fundamentally a numbing response, an avoidance response, um, a disconnection from others because we're not able to be as pro-social um, as we are when we are in the green zone. Um, absenteeism, which is a way of withdrawing. And so it's a withdrawal mechanism. Um, again, a numbing mechanism, missing things, dropping things by not having the level of activation that is, that is needed and required in certain settings. Um, it might mean a lack of meaning in the work, um, and it might mean frequently getting sick, depending on what's happening um, from a from a parasympathetic nervous system response. What's happening in the body? And sorry, I just saw that there's a clarification question. Hypervigilance. Um, hypervigilance. Um, if we think about um, to be vigilant as watchful. Um, you know, so like the classic example is like, you know, if it's dark at night and it, you're walking down the street and you're feeling a little bit on guard for, for your surroundings, um, that's an example of hypervigilance, hypervigilance with that might show up as, as being overly watchful for mistakes, um, in the work. It might be overly watchful for errors. It might be overly, overly concerned with things going wrong, overly concerned with bad things happening. I would also add to that constantly checking your email, um, perhaps texting people um, outside of usual work hours for things that actually could have waited. But the level of sympathetic arousal that yellow zone makes it intolerable for you to not engage with that. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to talk briefly about, um, there's a, a lesser talked about um, trauma response 
um, called FON. FON is the, this is the, the clinical definition, it's the process of abandoning the self for the purpose of attending to the needs of others. This is a way of sometimes managing when some when one is feeling stressed or is experiencing trauma. Um, it's a it's essentially oftentimes um, we could call it for the purposes of today um, people pleasing. It's you putting other people's needs ahead um, as a way to manage a response. Um, it's sacrificing one's own needs and appeasing and pleasing others. I always give the example sometimes of, of the child whose room is perfect is perfectly clean um, so as to not draw negative attention to oneself. You know, um, sorry. Um, and what happens fundamentally is um, it has an impact on the self where one's identity becomes second because we're so overly concerned with tending to the needs of other people. Um, and, it, and it certainly tips a line where it's it's overly um, overly focused on others' needs before one's own. Um, and it may also present as codependence. The impact of our identity, um, what happens when, um, when we are sort of stuck with particular responses, it's, as Kathleen has mentioned, it's hard to go from the, it can be hard to go from the yellow zone back to the green. And the, the fundamental thing to remember about the green zone is that's when our social engagement system is most engaged and it's when we're most able to connect with other people. Different contexts promote and support certain trauma responses. Uh, um, I would imagine that being in a courtroom um, promotes a sympathetic nervous system response and that's a, um, an appropriate response for that particular setting, but again, it can be hard to go from that particular setting to other settings where that where a sympathetic nervous system response isn't as warranted. So I think this often shows up when we leave work and we go home. Um, and what are the needs um, of the people that are in our lives outside of work? You know, is are those needs best met with a yellow zone or a red zone response? Or are we really needing to be back in our social engagement zone, our optimal window in order to best connect with others and to, and to fulfill the roles that we have outside of work? It's also further complicated for um, those people who have a survivor history, who have a trauma history, and the motivation for doing the, well, the work also informs how we do the work, where it may be harder to transition from certain roles because um, of the, um, the, the, the role of our professional identity is mixed in with our personal identity. All right, and the last concept that we wanted, to, the last additional part of our, of our nervous system that we wanted to bring to you today is a really more emerging um, part of the brain that's only kind of started to be talked about within the last five or six years. And that's called the default mode network. And um, we're still learning about this. We're still trying to understand the implications of it for ourselves and our practice. But the default mode network is this large scale brain network that um, you know, if you are interested in Googling pictures of it from MRIs of brains and MRI machines is this beautiful lit up network that has beautiful, what we call functional connectivity to all these parts of the brain. And it lights up usually predominantly when we are in a rest state, right? So when we are in a state of relaxation and rest in our brains. So the times when we are able to disengage from the outside and our brains move into a space of drift or unfocused time. So um, we the type the clinical term that we use for that is times when we are not task positive. So we're not focused on something external. We're trying to complete something. We're working on a task. 
but our, our minds tend to drift and we have unfocused time. So that might be for some folks, um, you know, when you're in the shower, some folks talk about their minds drifting when they're driving, um, that, that we need, our brains need this unfocused drifty time in order for this default mode network to really, really light up. And having it light up is important because it's a time that allows for, that lighting up allows for creativity, it helps for reflection, it might be, it's a time for insights. So I know um, in trying to figure out my how my brain works over time, one of the things I've learned is that when I'm really stuck on something, I need to go away from it for a while and stop thinking about it. And usually when I stop thinking about it and I sort of let my mind drift, I will get like an insight or a resolution to something that will just come in a really integrated way when I've allowed my brain to just move away from the task. So it is, it's very important, um, very important large-scale brain network that allows us to learn from previous experience to aware have awareness of our own thoughts and emotions related to self and have an embodied sense of self in space so we're learning that letting this default mode network light up is the foundation for a continuous experience of self across time so what does this mean default mode um, and why are we talking about it well, I think when we have toxic stress, it causes, it impacts the, what do we call the functional connectivity of this default mode network, how, what it connects to and how it lights up. And what we are finding is that toxic stress and trauma cause an, cause an overwiring of the brain of this network to the part of our brain that deals with threat orientation. So for those of you who are neurobiology people, um, it's the periaqueductal gray is the part of the brain that gets overly wired to. And this is also where we start to receive when it's, when it's wiring has been impacted by toxic stress or trauma messages about self that we receive when our mind is at drift. So what are the thoughts that you have about yourself? Um, we tend to find that folks tend to go to what we call a harsh inner critic is what they hear about themselves when they when their mind moves into drift, when they've experienced toxic stress or trauma. Um, is this a time that you might avoid? Do you avoid letting your mind go into drift because it goes to these messages about self that are really that are really hard, that harsh inner critic, something that might you might drive you always onto the next task in order to avoid that experience. And in addition to being overwired to threat orientation and a harsh inner critic. Our brains also start to change the way that we deal with ambiguity. So ambiguity starts to become equated with a threat response that in, or we always need to be prepared to respond because if it's not definitely safe, then it might be any of these other things that could be dangerous. So this over response to interpreting ambiguity as a potential threat and always prepared to respond might be a question. Might that be part of what makes you good at your job? that you're always prepared to respond and always able to um, meet those needs of ambiguous moments. So what does this all mean, I guess, is um, we to kind of bring this to a close so we'll have plenty of time for questions and comments. So we need to get to know our nervous system. I think that was the point of doing this, these, this two-part series is getting to know your nervous system, 
we want to learn the regulation skills in order to allow for flexibility of response. You want to be able to move fluidly in and out of those different zones and have a differential level types of responses in your toolbox based on what it is that's in front of you. You don't want to always be going to those stuck responses that sometimes are really effective and sometimes might not be the most effective for the moment. So the questions that we're asking you to consider out of this learning for today is what does your window of tolerance look like? As Anna said, what do you look like when you're in it? What do you look like when you're nearing your edges and you know which direction do you tend to go in and what does that look like for you? Where does your mind go to when you're not focused on a task? Do you have a harsh inner critic that has been wired as part of your default mode network? Um, is that maybe a time that you avoid because you don't like going there? And do you have flexibility of response? If you do, great, that's wonderful. You wanna to continue to maintain and work on it. Or are you stuck on yellow or red? Is that something that resonated for you today? This idea that you might be stuck on one or the other um, and where, where is it that you might be stuck? Um, here are our sources. I just wanted to point out this, this, this is the YouTube video I referenced right here, the polyvagal theory of new science of safety and trauma for those who are interested um, in learning a little bit more about that. So I will stop sharing. And I think we now have plenty of time for, for questions or comments. Thank you so much for this. Um, so if anyone has any questions, feel free to type them in to the, um, into the question and answer feature of this, and I'll be happy to read them out for you and we can get answers on that. Um, this was so eye-opening for me. Um, I've never heard of that red light, yellow light um, theory before and never really even considered um, you know, how that would be different. So thank you so much for that. Uh, we have one uh, question coming in. Is that YouTube video you mentioned linked in the last slide with sources? So that video that you've mentioned, do you wanna share that slide again um, so that the, that can be taken down? I know that we are going to be distributing the slides at the end of this. So then all of those lists, um, links and resources will be available to everyone who participated today. Yes, and I think the link in the deck is live, so you should be able to access it on the PDF. Thank you. So we have another question coming in. Could you speak about how ADD slash ADHD relates to the zones and arousal states? That's a really, really great question. Um, and it's a question that I actually get asked a lot in working with kids who have a lot of trauma history. Um, and I think I think it can be it can be very difficult to sort of determine out kind of the sympathetic arousal versus that for, for the versus the ADD. I think the, the very short answer is we don't really have a great answer yet. I, I have not a really nice pat answer, like here's what this looks like, here's what that looks like. I think with, um, with ADD, the, the kind of that motor driven quality of always moving forward is always there and is pervasive across all the different settings, right? And I think with sometimes with more like a trauma oriented or a toxic stress response, we might find that it's triggered in response to certain reminders or situations, and then there tends to be an ability to bring a little bit of resolution to it. So we might 
you know, might be kind of in your green state, but then you move into your yellow state, but you're able to hopefully return to green with support and regulation. External support and regulation don't help that motor-driven quality of ADD be able to resolve itself. This becomes more complicated when you're stuck in yellow, right? Um, and I think that kind of where the si neuroscience is right now, we sort of don't know the impact on the nervous system over time and how the two pieces relate to each other. But I do know in working with kids and adolescents that a lot of times what is might be diagnosed as an ADD or ADHD is actually missing some other autonomic um, nervous system impact of trauma. Did you want to add to that, Anna? I was going to say, I think that... Um piggybacking on what Kathleen said, it, it's thinking about what's triggering the yellow zone. Um, and is it a, a hypersensitivity to stress-related cues um, versus um, ADHD, which is it, it, um, more of a neurodivergent um, orientation to the yellow zone, um, not being an ADHD expert at all. <laughs> so we have another question, which I think will be more fully answered in our second session. Can you talk about what we can do to get unstuck once we notice it? What are our next best steps? That That is the theme of our second session. <laughs> So I can um, also drop that link in the chat to anyone who is not registered to please register for that to get all of the full discussion on that. Um, so until then, we'll just keep answering questions about what we've already discussed. Um, so the next question is, um, in our jobs, we're often in a situation where we're overwhelmed with clients with many needs. I find it very rewarding to do everything I can for someone, but very stressful to have to stop short because of the limits of time and the realities of courts. Etc. Could you talk about how this situation fits into the concepts you're describing? I, I think it's again thinking about what um, what happens in your bodies when um, that stress isn't resolved, um, when we're not necessarily able to meet um, the needs of of the moment or the the perceived needs of the moment and what the impact is um, on us neurobiologically to not be able to resolve that stress um, and thinking about the impact of that um, chronicity of moments like that. Yeah, I think that that's what makes the impact of the work so difficult is that it's the intensity of always needing to move from the next thing to the next thing. And how do you start to find ways of crafting micro transitions for yourself or bringing in a little tiny bit of regulation of sort of knowing when you're in those moments and being able to observe and tend to your nervous system. Um, and, but it's, I mean, it's hard to move from thing to thing and then having an accumulation of all that all day and then trying to turn it off at the end of the workday. It's almost Im impossible for our bodies to do without a lot of support. Um, so I think that 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 is um, literally you outline in your in your question very well the the toll why the work takes the toll that it does. Um, I actually I'm going to jump down if it's okay to the um, the question about how race relates to the zones because I think this is a really really great and important question. So as we 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 mentioned briefly how different contexts um, demand and endorse different types of of responses from us. And I think, you know, we have structural violence and oppression that demands for certain groups 
to live within the yellow zone in order to maintain safety and awareness for self and loved ones. And so I think, you know, as we think about the, the toll that structural violence, racism, police violence takes on bodies, right? It's not, and, and bodies are parts of communities and how communities have to move, like have to live within different zones in order to maintain safety. So I, you know, I think it can be, it can feel very dire to think that our bodies are being wired relative to the, the way our institutions and our society is structured, but it's, it is the reality of it. And one of the things in our clinical work that we are always very careful of is we don't ever want to take away defenses that are helping to keep someone currently safe. Um, we work to understand what those, what their bodily states are and to help them to have improved accuracy but if you are living with ongoing threat or violence or um, uh, or systems that that are violent against you, that is we want to honor our body's response to that and to support to maintain it. And, and continue to see it as adaptive as opposed it's, to it's adaptive. Yep. Yeah. It's not maladaptive, it's adaptive. I think um, the next one actually is a really nice segue into that, um, talking about inherited trauma. So if you haven't experienced trauma directly from your environment, but have inherited it, does this mean your window of tolerance is more narrow from the time you're born? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's a complicated answer, but I think that I'll start with, with thinking about, um, you know, we know that epigenetics impacts how trauma presents, and we know that trauma is inherited at a cellular level, but we also know that trauma is shaped by our attachment experiences and our ways that we learn how to self-soothe and regulate um, as children and in our, in our experiences that, um, you know, prompt trauma response, trump, excuse me, prompt trauma responses and what neural pathways may come from that. Um, we also know that, you know, those um, inherited genes are adoptive and often serve serve a purpose, too. So it, it's kind of a, it's a complex mix of inherited genes, attachment, lived experience, supports, adaptations. Um, I could go on, Kathleen. I don't know if you want to add. You're muted. Sorry, I would even wonder to say, like, does it mean that it is more narrow from the time you were born? I think oh, definitely, way, yeah. You, I think the way I think about it is um, that from intergenerational and cultural transmission, like things have happened that have been so profoundly important that our bodies have said we need to pass this on to the next generation so that it knows to be prepared to respond to this. Um, and so, you know, I think of it as 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 a wisdom that gets passed on through the bodies that again is, is adaptive and it doesn't, that the, the, our bodies don't want to lose that because it's been so profoundly important. And so, you, you know, your window of tolerance might be, maybe it's a little bit more narrow, but it's also wiser because of that, that transmission genetically or communally or intergenerationally. So I know that we're running out of time and I just wanted to mention that, you know, if um, there this is another part to this training, we're going to be meeting again next week, next Tuesday at an earlier time at 10. The link is in the chat for anyone who has not already registered to get the toolkit. But if anything that we have talked about today has brought things up for you, there are resources available, specifically Lawyers Concerned for Lawyers is an excellent resource with lots of support groups and um, other things to take advantage of. So I'll put the link for that into the chat as well. 
well, um, as well as the new um, the new uh, mental health hotline it is 988 is what I've just learned about that. I don't know if you want to close up saying anything about that, but until then, we're at one o'clock. And I want to thank everyone for um, their time here, um, especially Kathleen Clinton and Anna Mancuso and everyone else for participating and having such great questions today. All right. Yeah, nothing to add from our end. So thank you all for your time. And we look forward to seeing you all, seeing you all next week. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.